um, singing and purposely focusing um, our sung worship on Jesus, on who he is, on um, yeah, the person, the identity of Jesus. And that's what we've been exploring in our last few Sundays as we've been um, looking at the Gospel of John and particularly at the signs. He, he, he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs in his book because he wants every single one of the seven to point to Jesus and who he is. And so today we are following on in chapter six from last week's Feeding of the 5,000. Um, so if you have a Bible, we're, uh, if it's a church Bible, we're on page 884. But first of all, I have a question for you, which is probably very appropriate this morning. How do you react to the idea that rain is a blessing and a symbol of God's provision for you? For those of you who struggled through the floods and are worrying about getting home today, that, that might be interesting to see how you answer that question. If you lived in biblical times in the Middle East, perhaps if you live in the Middle East today, you might have a very different idea of, um, of your answer to that question, your response to the idea of rain. I was reflecting back to November last year and thinking it's not all that different today for us. You recognize these pictures from Yorkshire in November? And I remember thinking at the time, gosh, they've had enough rain. And at the same time, on probably the same news bulletin, we had Australia burning and crying out for rain. Um, and I know we can sit with that paradox and, and wonder what is happening in our world. What have we done to our world? And, and we might be asking, where is God in these two situations of destruction? What's going on? But the attitude towards different people to something like rain is obviously very dependent on your context or on your perspective. Perspective matters when we think about things, particularly when we come to the Bible and it's um, written from a particular context with a particular people and their understanding of the world, their experience of the world, and the poetic language they choose, the symbols, the metaphors, the similes they choose to make sense of who God is and what's going on in the world might be a bit different from ours, the one, what we might choose if we were to have, have written the Bible. But... Perspective matters. I, when I think of the sea, this is the sort of picture I think of. My childhood holidays on beaches in Cornwall, oh, lovely. Grew up there, in and out of the water, splashing around, having a fantastic time. This is what I think of the sea. I grew up near the sea, and basically I lived either beside, on, or under the sea for most of my childhood. And I mean, absolutely give it its respect. You can see it um, in its awesome power and know to respect it. But it's, for me, it's such a place where I feel connected to God. I feel close to God near the sea. I could sit and watch the sea for hours in every season, whatever's going on. For me, I just love the sea. And um, growing up in, uh, near North Devon, um, obviously surfing was quite a big part of my um, teenagerhood, I should say. Not that I ever achieved anything close to this. I think maybe three times I managed to get off my knees in the whole of my experience of surfing. However, I used to toddle along with my brother and all his mates and, and, and they would go surfing. Um, 
So for them, the sea again was something that was about exhilaration and enjoyment and fun and just amazing times. And waves are really important. So their perspective on waves was they'd always be looking at how big are the waves. They'd look on the webcams, how big are the waves? Offshore, onshore, wind, messy, choppy, whatever. How big are the waves? How big are the waves is, another, is a question which, again, your perspective matters. If you're about to cross the channel, on the ferry, how big are the waves means something entirely different to us, doesn't it? So again, perspective matters. In, in my teenage years, my brother and I were, were going to get baptised, and I was looking for a verse in the Bible that would combine his love of God with his love of the sea. I searched. I searched and I searched, I searched. I did the, we didn't even have the internet to the extent that we have today. So I had my concordances out and I was looking for scripture about the ocean and how wonderful it is and how positive and beautiful and life-affirming it is. It's not there. Not there. And I wondered as a teenager, what's going on? I had to choose a different scripture for my brother's uh, baptism card because the sea, in the perspective, the perspective of the people living in Jesus' country at his time, their understanding of the sea is very, very different from ours. And so you won't find a wonderful blessing, encouraging scripture that talks about the amazingness of the sea, because for them, the sea was a symbol of chaos. Remember in Genesis' account, there's sort of this watery chaos that needs to, needs to have order brought out of it, and that was God's God's role was to bring order out of chaos. And the sea is sort of like the symbol of what's happening there. So it's a symbol of chaos instead of order. It's also used very often in opposition to God. So for example, um, yes, in Genesis, it's there as this sort of unruly, chaotic existence over which God exerts his authority and brings order out of chaos. He brings limits to the sea and he imposes his authority on the sea and in the Psalms if you do read at the sea you'll read primarily of God's sovereignty over the sea his authority over the sea because the sea is seen to be this force of nature or perhaps even of the demonic against the purposes of God and that's how the the Bible the, the Hebrew mentality that's how they viewed the sea it's something, there's something in there about the sea being a destructive destiny. You remember when Jesus healed the man who was possessed of many, many demons, and the demons asked him not to send them to the pit, but to send them into the pigs. And where immediately did the pigs run to? Right down the cliff into the sea. Well, it was a lake, but they called it the sea, which tells you all you need to know about how much they feared even a body of water like the Sea of Galilee. There's a destructive sort of... Um, pit, hellish type understanding of the sea in the Bible, which I find very sad, really, because I love the sea. But go with me on this, because we need to understand where the, the Bible writers and Jesus' own audience and Jesus' own um, context would have understood what, was, what the sea represented. It's also represented very often in the Bible as something that's restrictive, so it's a barrier, a limit to God's people. Remember the Exodus and the, the, um, the Egyptians are following the Israelites. They have escaped from Pharaoh, but Pharaoh has changed his mind and sends the army after them. Remember this? And they, they're running effectively away and being pursued. There they are at the sea. The sea is a barrier. And it would seem it's an impenetrable, impassable barrier to the people of God between them and their freedom. 
and the enemy is coming, and the enemy is coming, and the sea is seen as the barrier that won't let them pass and will spell their destruction when Egypt catches up with them. And what we see in the Exodus story is that God, yet again, God imposes his order on that body of water, parts it, and allows freedom to happen for his people. But the sea is in opposition to God's purposes. And the sea, the Red Sea in that case, is a restriction, a limit to God's people. So although it might not strike a chord with us who live by the sea and love the sea, once we understand that's how the sea is viewed symbolically in the Bible, then when we read about accounts and events that happen in, around, or beside the sea, we need to think of it in these terms, as if it represents all of this. So, we come to our scripture. And it begins at verse 16 of chapter 6 in John's Gospel. That evening... Let's have some context. The evening of when? The evening of the day when Jesus had just fed 5,000 people, plus, probably more like 10 when you count the women and children, possibly even more. Anyway, that evening. That evening, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, come back from where? Have a look a little bit earlier. Jesus hadn't come back from where? Well, if you look back at verse 14, after Jesus had fed them all and they were full and the disciples had collected up all the baskets, the 12 baskets of leftovers, they were all satisfied physically. But when the people saw this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we've been expecting. Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king. So he went higher into the hills alone. That's where he escaped to. He ran away from their demands that he should be king. How ironic that the king of kings should be running into the hills to hide from the people who want to make him king. But John's also reminding us of what's coming in the future. The king of the Jews, the sign above his cross, again, meant ironically, but my goodness, it points to the truth. However, that's where Jesus has gone to. His disciples have gone down to the lake and are waiting for him. As darkness fell, Jesus still hadn't come back. So they got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. Now remember these, these disciples, some of them were fishermen. So they were used to the sea. They uh, took their life in their hands and went out fishing on this terrible, dangerous, chaotic, demonic body of water. Probably many days of their lives. They were used to it. And the Sea of Galilee was renowned for suddenly having squalls and, and, and wind whipping down off the hills and creating like mini storms. This account is not the same account as Jesus calming the storm. And I did do a bit of sort of flicking between the two to see, is this the same episode or a different episode? It's a different episode. And you'll notice that so far, we have no idea what the disciples were feeling or thinking. This account is in three different Gospels. It's here in John, it's in Matthew, and it's in Mark. And in, both, in all those cases, it follows immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. It's the way in which they sort of exit the scene. And there are very great similarities between them, and there are differences, as you might expect, from the different um, Gospel writers. But in none of them does it say that the disciples are frightened by the 
storm. So I'm wondering if it's a really a storm or it's simply just heavy weather. And they're rowing and they're rowing. They're not making much progress, but they're rowing and they're rowing, according to Mark and Matthew. And here we go. They had rowed for three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water towards the boat. Then, that's where John says, they were terrified. Okay, there's only one mention of how the disciples felt, and it wasn't about the wind and the waves and the hard work with rowing the boat against a wind. They were terrified when they saw Jesus. I wonder why. Well, here they are on this chaotic, dangerous, possibly demonic body of water, and this figure, this strange apparition, happens to be walking on the water, through the waves, towards them. There are all sorts of superstitions and stories that grow up around the sea for them, for them at their time. You know, spirits of the sea, demons, and this, that, and the other. Who knows what they thought had just appeared on the water? But whatever it was, they were terrified. And there he is, Jesus, walking towards them. And I wonder, he obviously perceives that they are terrified because he says to them those fantastic words that appear so many times in the Bible, don't be afraid. Aren't we creatures that just love being afraid of the slightest thing? I know I, I mean, maybe fear isn't always our reaction, but there's anxiety or there's hesitation or there's withdrawal or there's that nervousness. We have a tendency to pull back, to be scared to some degree, at almost anything, if you're like me. Jesus knows our frailty. He knows his disciples. He probably has heard the stories himself of what appears in the sea, on the sea, and he can see they're terrified. Don't be afraid, he says, I am here. That in itself is a bit frightening. Do you not think? <laughs> I'm here. I'm standing on the water. What? What is going on, Jesus? This is slightly odd. This is um, not what we expected. You, you're Jesus, so that's good, but you're standing on water. What is that about? I don't know, did that help them to feel less afraid or did it just completely make them, you know, flip out? In addition to the fact that Jesus is trying to reassure them, I'm here, I'm here with you, I'm here near you, I'm coming to you. He uses words which I think probably also, not terrified, but um, had such weight to them that perhaps not at that moment in amongst the, the waves and the rocking of the boat, but perhaps later on, the disciples would have been awestruck once again. I've put them in capitals. I am here. We don't notice it in the English so much, but you would in the Greek. Ego emi. You would if you, if you recognized the I am. It might be easier if, if, as one of the versions has in a footnote, don't be afraid, the I am is here. Does that make a difference to how you hear his voice and what he says? The I am is here. Who is the I am? Well, we go back again to the story just pre-Exodus. We go back to the burning bush and Moses being called to be the leader of God's people who will take them out of slavery and into freedom. And he asks, God, who shall I say has sent me? Who are you? What is your name? And God replies, I am. 
or I will be who I will be. It's so enigmatic that the translators don't even know what to do with it. It's, it's the word that then becomes translated into the tetragram, the, 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 the Jewish symbol, the writing for the name of God, which they can't even say, and they don't even fully spell because it's too holy. And we simply say it's the I am. But Jesus says, the I am is here. I am here. On different levels, that says so much to the disciples and perhaps to us if we sort of put ourselves in their position. I am here. The I am. The one who created the heavens and the earth. The one who liberated your people, my people from Egypt, from slavery. The I am, who very shortly will say, I am the bread of life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am all these things. Before the beginning of the world, I am. And here in the, in the, the squall, in, in amongst the waves and the wind, with the disciples pulling on the oars, wondering if they'll ever make it across the, across the lake before daybreak, Jesus comes to them and says, the I am is here, don't be afraid. Now that makes us understand Jesus as slightly bigger, well, a whole lot bigger, than just a human walking on water, as bizarre and amazing as that might seem. It's not just a human doing a magic trick. We're talking about the I am being here in the middle of this uh, squally sea, this place of chaos. Don't be afraid, I am here. I wonder what you would do faced with that. You know, last week when I was telling the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and, and we all had those wondering questions and one of the wondering questions was, I wonder where you are in this story. And that's quite a good way of using our imaginations that God gave us anyway, to put ourselves into a biblical story and sort of explore it a bit further to get out of it all that we can through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So put yourself in that position. If you were a disciple in that boat, you're pulling, you're doing your best. You're pulling on the oars. You're maybe making headway and you kind of hope you'll get there in the end. And through all of that chaos and the wind and the waves, this figure comes towards you. And you're petrified, you're terrified, you've no idea what it is until it speaks and reveals itself to be your friend, your master, your teacher, Jesus. You recognize the voice and the voice says something kind, something reassuring, don't be afraid. And then it, the voice says something that on the one hand blows your mind and on the other hand gives you very good reason not to be afraid. The I am is here. Now what would you do? Well, once again, perspective matters. If Jesus approaches you and says, don't be afraid, I'm here, and you don't know who Jesus is, you might carry on being terrified. If you're struck by the enormity of God and you have maybe this idea of God as a, uh, as a headmaster or an angry father up in heaven waiting to strike you with bolts of lightning for all, everything you've ever done, or said that was wrong and he says I am here you might remain petrified you might your terror might increase perspective matters because if you know Jesus if he's your your teacher your master 
then actually your response will be very different. Do not think. What would you do when he says, don't be afraid, I am here? Well, in, um, in Matthew's account of this, we get the, 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 epi- the episode is sort of like expanded and we hear about Peter's attempt to walk to Jesus. And many of us will be familiar with that. But John makes no mention of Peter in his account. And I wonder if it's for this reason. We saw this a few weeks ago. John is clear about his purpose in writing the gospel, in choosing which bits of Jesus' life he's going to put together and why. And he writes it, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you remember that? We looked at that. John's purpose is always to point to Jesus because it's only by believing in him that you will have life. So I wonder if, in fact, yeah, Peter walking on water, that's quite an astounding thing to have chosen to leave out. But I wonder if John was just so adamant that we should see Jesus and focus on Jesus alone because by no other name can we be saved. That he just happens to miss out the exploits of Peter and much has been made of that, and that's another sermon is to think about what do we do when we get out of the boat and blah, 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 all of that. But in this account, in this account, what would you do? Well, the disciples were eager to let him into the boat when they knew it was Jesus. And presumably, they therefore believed that they had no more reason to fear when they knew it was Jesus and they recognized that this was the almighty I am speaking to them through the waves, they were eager to let him into the boat. Like, come on, get in here, <laughs> come to us, please. They were really keen to have him right beside them. And immediately, John's Gospel says, immediately they arrived at their destination. I tried to count up, I think this is sign number five, am I right? Could be. But it, sign five might have a 5B attached to it. Because I wonder, how did they immediately arrive at their destination? Was that a supernatural sort of ability to suddenly find themselves, oh, there we are, we've arrived, Jesus is with us. Part of me wonders, when you combine John's purpose of writing, that you should believe, and by believing, have life, I wonder if he puts it in these terms to help us understand it almost like a parable. Now, I'm not sure that John wrote it for this purpose, but I want us to explore this because it's not, um, it's not clear whether he wrote it for this purpose, but it does reflect the truth that we read elsewhere in the Bible. That at that moment of crying out to Jesus, of receiving Jesus, of being eager to have him in the boat with you, at that moment of repentance, of turning your life around, of recognizing the I am, the one who speaks to you from the waves and the wind, at that moment, you reach your destination in terms of the life that John is writing about, that John is pointing to and that Jesus promised to all who believe in him. At that moment, So if we are in the boat, as it were, and if we're willing to have Jesus come into the boat for the very first time, then I want us to wonder if in fact that does mean that in that moment, 
we receive, we reach our destination in the sense of we receive that eternal life from that moment. Do you remember the words of that old hymn? Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. There's no more straining on the oars, doing good works to get yourself to heaven eventually, now Jesus is in the boat. No, that moment that Jesus gets into the boat, you've received a pardon. Your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life in Christ which will be from now onwards until the day you die and when you open your eyes in eternity, it will continue with Jesus because at that moment when you were eager for him to get into the boat and you said, yes, please come in, from that moment you have reached your destination. Now, does that mean that we're all perfect? <laughs> I'm glad some of you are honest enough to be shaking your head because I know for me it doesn't. So we live in this sort of, this is the reality of being a follower of Jesus, the reality of having given our life to him. On the one hand, we know absolutely with assurance that that pardon has been given, that forgiveness has been received, that our lives are safe in God with Christ. We know that to be true, but we also kind of have to live through the now and the not yet which means that, yes, we still struggle with um, recurring sin. We still struggle with getting things wrong time and again. We still struggle with learning and, and finding God, opening our minds to understand more of what he has for us. There's still a lot of growing and learning to be done along the way. We are being made holy, even as God looks at us and says, you are holy. Sue, you're holy because I don't see any sin in you. And yet, at the same time, you come to me and ask forgiveness. It's yours. Because it's a now and a not yet in the Christian life. It's that sort of reality that we live with. We are saints, but we're still sinners who are being transformed. <clears throat> so here's the boat, here's the storm, and here's Jesus, the I am, coming to you through the storm. And I don't know if this par this um, this account speaks to you more of your need for a saviour right now, which I've just described, or if it speaks to you of life where you are the one pulling at the oars. You're doing your level best to reach the other side, to get through this. And maybe you're beginning to lose hope because you're not making a whole lot of headway. And maybe you need to look up and see Jesus there in the midst of it, not distant up on the hillside any longer, but right there in the midst of it with you, saying, don't be afraid, the I am is here. And perhaps, even though you know your life is safe for eternity in, in Christ, because you gave your heart to Jesus, and you know that's secure, you still feel like you are pulling on those oars and you're not making headway, and you're in this chaotic place of destruction and opposition, sometimes Jesus calls you into that place for a season and for a purpose. And other times we put ourselves there because of our own stupidity or our own willful rebellion. And sometimes it just happens because life is like that. 
But if we are pulling on the oars, desperately trying to get to our destination on our own, we need to hear that Jesus is there in the storm saying, don't be afraid, I am here. Now what will you do about that? Are you going to invite him into the boat and be with you in the storm? Or are you going to say, that's great, Jesus, stay over there. I'm not frightened anymore, but I'll just keep on rowing. I'll just keep on going until I get there. I would encourage you to stop rowing for a moment so you can welcome Jesus in. Help him, help him over the gunwale. It must be quite hard to walk, step into a boat from a wobbly sea that you're standing on. I don't know, stop rowing for a moment. Focus on getting Jesus into the boat with you. Because the I am, the one who flung stars into space, the one who was there at the creation of the world, the one who does have authority and dominion over the sea and everything it represents, is there saying, don't be afraid, I am here. But it's up to you to respond and invite him right into the boat and stop rowing for a moment to welcome him. The disciples saw Jesus and were amazed. And you'll read later on, the crowds were puzzled. They couldn't figure out how on earth had Jesus got over to the other side of the lake. It just didn't make sense. There's a lot of confusion when we encounter God because God is, thankfully, so much bigger than we can understand. But please understand this, that whatever the storm is, Whatever that sea represents in that negative sense for you. Jesus isn't far away. He's right there with you. And some of us need to stop rowing against the wind and just ask him, invite him into that situation and wait and see what he wants to do about it. Can I pray for us? I realize our time is up, but... Uh, let's, let's pray, and in our mind's eye, perhaps, we want to place ourselves in that, in that picture. And you will know if, actually this is spoken to you this morning, you will know if there is a, a, a sort of a stormy season of life that you're going through. And you'll know if it's you that is rowing frantically, trying your very best to make it through. And maybe this morning, you need to be reminded that it's not about your strength. It's not even about your resilience. It's not even about the strength of your faith. It's about the one who's in the boat with you. And his strength. So if you're a visual person, then maybe by way of a prayer, you want to imagine in your mind's eye your own response to seeing Jesus out on the water. And picture it like a movie in your head. What will you say to him? What will you do? Will you let go of the oars? Will you change direction? What, what will you do? These words of Jesus are for somebody this morning. Don't be afraid. I am here. 
Amen.